Sure. I think I've always, even back in 2009, sort of uh, adversarial response to what do you do? Because I think that what do you do is also the first question that we ask each other as Westerners in the sense of like, we want to reduce everything so we understand it. And I think as waste farmers, it's, you know, sort of out there in the world, like part of what we're saying is that like this reducing things to its simplest parts is part of the thinking that's gotten us into the problem. Mm. And that right there, folks, is the last time I ever asked anyone the question, what do you do? Please welcome everybody, John Paul Maxfield, the founder and CEO of Waste Farmers, the first regenerative holding and operating company that develops people, businesses, and brands that transform emerging social and environmental needs into market-based opportunities. Well, what do they do? (laughs) You're going to find out not what they do, but how they think in this episode. John Paul Maxfield really changed not only how I approach new business owners, but how I think about business in the long term. I'm Kevin Edwards, and you're listening to episode 33 of the Earlier's podcast to discover what motivates people beyond their chosen careers. Enjoy. And John, we're going to go live in three, two, one. Welcome, world, to episode 33. 33 of the Relius podcast um, with my friend John Paul Maxfield of Waste Farmers. John, how are you doing this morning? I'm well. How are you? Like I said earlier, I'm cold. It's cold out here in uh, the Pacific Northwest, but I got my jacket on and I'm ready to go with you, man. Well, I dig it. I dig it. uh, You have to forgive me. um, I've got three kids and my wife's a teacher, so it's kind of like ground zero for any flu virus that comes through so uh i've been i'm on the other side of uh of the flu so i sound worse than i feel well i um, but <laughs> well we're, we're gonna have a positive interview uh today so we're, we're gonna lift those spirits up hopefully avoid that sickness uh you know one day at a time but uh before we get started uh john just want to give a, a quick uh quick shout out to Relius magazine and waste farmers uh located on page 88 uh people the magazine will be in stores uh in retailers and newsstands around north america uh tomorrow actually january 23rd um and on page 88 like i said you will see uh john paul's uh waste farmers on there um making the top 100 list and john uh, why did waste farmers make this top 100 list um i think that uh we made it because uh, i i think that since 2009 i think before it was sort of <clears throat> vogue we were uh operating from the idea that the business can be a force for good and um you know i think uh i don't know i think even uh a blind chicken finds a few, few pieces of corn now and again as my dad would say <laughs> well uh, um, but but yeah. truthfully we, we make it a, um it's been a a, a a goal since the inception of the company to sort of operate in this fashion and i think it's really um both indicative of how far uh sort of the idea of impact has come and um how uh, you know awesome it is that, that this sort of recognition exists because 
sort of in the, uh, you know, in the right communication Buddhist concept of like, you know, the, the response to getting this award should be like, you're right. We're doing a lot of things well, but we have a ton to do better and we want to continue to work harder. So I think um, it's, it's nice to get the recognition and it's also a good uh, reminder to keep doing better. And um, we're grateful to be a part of it with all the amazing companies that are listed. Uh, so we, we're really grateful. You're right. I mean, there's a ton of amazing companies like yourselves who are doing incredible work and just aren't getting recognized. So I'm glad um, we were able to, to bring out this list of top 100 impact companies. And folks, if you're not familiar with the list, the way it was scored was uh, we had all these companies apply over hundreds and hundreds of companies apply and and they filled out their revenue, um, their which is, uh, you know, say, uh, I think it was a force for good formula. So we had revenue, uh, mass. So we had acceleration, which was your growth percentage. Um, and then also multiplied by your B, uh, B score. So certified B corporations. Um, and that got you on the list. So congratulations on that. But John, let's, let's, let's dive into kind of, you know, less real leaders, more about you. You know, you are a real leader. Um, but where, where are you from? What's your story? What's your background? Sure. I'm from, uh, I'm actually from Colorado. Um, and I think, uh, my background is sort of, uh, um, a creative at heart and I see businesses and I've always seen it as sort of an outlet for that. And I think, um, broadly speaking, I think that's sort of, the uh, you know, uh, Carol Sanford sort of talks a lot about this, but in the sense of, I think creation's a natural state of people. Um, and I think we're seeking, you know, outlets to create and, Business, as it's been done, um, has sort of, I think, robbed people of that. Uh, and I think business done properly can, um, you know, sort of uh, help to nurture that creative spirit that I think exists naturally in everybody and um, create a, a better company and then have a ripple effect to communities and, uh, you know, democracy. And I, that's where I think that business is really sort of uh one of the largest drivers for a lot of the ills that we have social environmental and i think it can be one of the greatest sort of levers to to fix it and so that's what's always driven me um and uh so that's sort of the background now john you said did you always have the like the entrepreneur uh itch did you always have you you explained to me earlier that this creative drive um did you always possess that or, or did that come about um uh, through this process so I, it, I always, I think probably intuitively possessed certainly the creative aspect. Um, I'm a musician as well. Um, but, uh, the, the thing I couldn't get sort of past was like, like terms, like it's not nothing personal. It's just business or just like, there's an aspect of business that didn't really sort of resonate. And so it was kind of like, I think there's probably a better way to structure this. And I think, you're sort of looking at, uh, you know, the fact that we spend 90% of our time in developed countries in business. It's sort of this, the actual concept of building a company that that's founded on principles of, you know, good. I think that, that you have this incredible lever and, and uh, platform for um, creating change. Uh, and so, I mean, like as a kid, like I had lemonade stands and I, 
I can't really do anything half ass. So um, if I commit to something that's pretty uh, all or nothing. So like a lemonade stands, I think, you know, I had one and it worked and then I like basically franchised it out. Oh, yeah, um, there you go. And then, yeah, I'm, yeah, I think would, it's probably all now, in there. Would you say that's a trait that's kind of, you know, separate you from a lot of your friends and, and family members that, you know, if you start something, you're going to finish it, you're going to do, you know, you're going to go all in. Is that something that um, you found most entrepreneurs need or? Oh, God, yeah. I think that like persistence is the only, you know, uh, common trait amongst it. I, I don't think it's funny. I think like <clears throat> Escoffier was a, was a chef. Like before Escoffier, as I've, as I hear, as I've heard it, like the kitchen was out of sight. It was, you know, like we're talking way back when, like it was, you know, culinary and chefs and all, like, it was like, that's servants work and it's done in the basement. No one wants to see it, but he made it cool. And I think entrepreneurialism was really like, even as far back or even as recent as like the eighties was like, Oh, you're an entrepreneur. Cool. You couldn't get a job. Like, and like with the advent of sort of the startup culture and there's been sort of this re uh, romanticizing of, of entrepreneurialism. But I think that, um, it's uh, to actually do it is is one of sort of just not giving up. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the, the sort of common thread. So I think you have to kind of commit to it. Now, what John? What other jobs have you had prior um, to founding and starting uh, Waste Farmers? Um. So I, I uh, let's see. Um, I got to go down and we, uh, I was with a company that we oversaw the, we took over New Orleans public schools when they were failing. Um, and I, I took a job with them because there was an opportunity to go down and help sort of oversee the restoration of the you know, schools post Katrina. So it was an opportunity to sort of contribute and be a part of that. Um, I worked in private equity for a brief stint with a wonderful group. Um, and, uh, you know, learned, uh, kind of the language of business and, uh, also, you know, sort of recognize that, that, you know, finance, pure finance from my perspective is very, uh, sanitary and void creation. Uh, and so it wasn't a good fit for, for my creative spirit, but it was a good foundation. Um, and also a good excuse when I got fired from there to get started going with this. Yeah, I was going to say, interesting. Uh, from private equity to you know uh, regenerating um, and restorative soil, and, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But um, what what a big contrasting change. I mean, you don't really see that that often. Um, people go, coming from private equity to um, something a little bit, I guess, more purposeful. Would you say, uh, if you will? But um, you know, what what was that? mindset that changed like when either I don't know if you got fired fired or let go or if you quit whatever it was but what did you what was going through your head at that time um I think relief (laughs) was was going through there but I think um you know the the soil piece the agricultural piece like we're we're from uh you know Colorado and then a lot of my family's from most of all my family um, is from Wyoming. Um, and so there's an agricultural background there. And so 
the uh, uh, agriculture sort of at this epicenter of or a logical place for regeneration. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of curiosity in gender just through connection with nature and, and agriculture has sort of a, a really... So uh, I think being creative and one of the things that, that in addition to persistence that I think has benefited us is, has been sort of um, an ability to... Uh, I can I see patterns and I can find you know, simplicity within patterns. And if you look at, you know, where we are as a species, there's sort of like this inflection point where mm. um, there's some pretty big, ex, you know, uh, existential things coming our way. and It's going to change um, the way we live and the way we uh, uh, operate. And I think business is a big part of that. So um, for me, it was sort of in the, in the context of what, what I really admired was people who founded companies and things that lasted and um you know so it was less about like what are we going to do and more about like how can let's just create this place for people to come together and bring what they're uniquely sort of passionate about and um create a place where we can work together to create something and, and, and have an impact and so that was sort of the the genesis and the focus from the start um Agriculture is a big part of, of the shift that, that needs to occur. Um, but even then, early on, I didn't want to be limited to those things um, and wanted to create something that, you know, uh, inspired by natural systems was adaptable and, and able to navigate uh, uh, an increasingly complex world. So, um, yeah. And John, I think uh, people are probably wondering, listening, it's just like, man, what does he do? What does he do? So how would you explain um, to somebody who has never heard of Waste Farmers um, what your company is? Sure. I think I've always, even back in 2009, sort of uh, adversarial response to what do you do? Because I think that what do you do is also the first question that we ask each other as Westerners in the sense of like, we want to reduce everything. So we understand it. And I think as waste farmers is, you know, sort of out there in the world, like part of what we're saying is that like this reducing things to its simplest parts is part of the thinking that's gotten us into the problem. That we're in. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, again, it, you know, complexity is a natural state. Um, uncertainties in natural state uh, you know many religions have talked about this you know Buddhism and, and Taoism in, in particular have sort of talked about this this sort of constant state of um, change but uh, and so I think that you know what we want to create is and what we want to evolve into is kind of this organism that that uh, is constantly turning um, these evolving social environmental needs into business opportunities, um, which means that, you know, and then translated to, to business, I think the pace of change, um, both, you know, driven by some of the externalities of the climate change, but also through technology, like just practically speaking from a business perspective, things are changing so rapidly that if you define your company by a product, um, you will inevitably go out of business. 
competitive advantage is, is no longer sustainable. It's, it's transient. And so how do you design uh, a company that can um, meet the needs of, of uh, this rapidly changing world? And I think um, we look to nature and, you know, through self-organizing um, and through, you know, uh, flexible corporate structure, um, we think that we can create something that really lasts and, 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 you know, creates change. And I think the, what do you do aspect, again, I sort of push against it because all of the issues that we face as a species are inherently complex and systemic. And I think that in order to solve those systemic problems, we need systemic multi-level sort of like multi-stakeholder thinking. Mm. And so, you know, I'd say we're nine years in on what, what I hope is uh, a hundred year journey, certainly beyond uh, my lifetime. And so, um, you know, we kind of think uh, uh, and hold them without going insane, but, you know, we're, we've got to build a foundation uh, of growth and um, think about like the, like a tree sort of grows its trunk and then from there it's able to sort of fractal out and right now um really focused on building that strong you know sort of trunk so that, that base um, we can continue to fractal out yep mm, interesting and so soil is a very good sort of uh initial product for us and it's also uh, a good analogy in the sense that if you actually ask a farmer like joel salatin always jokes that he's a, a grass farmer you know or a soil farmer even though he grows chicken or I mean, even though he raises chickens and grass fed beef, but like when you, when you have good soil and you tend the soil then anything that sprouts out of it is, is on good foundation. So um, same goes for building a company. Interesting. Now you say uh, complexity is a natural state. Uh, you talked a lot about transforming in this long-term vision uh, and how uh, companies might have more of a, a short-term, a short profit uh Thinking type type of thinking, very it's very subjective. Um, John, how has your business transformed over these last nine years, and what are some of the takeaways from that? When we started, so and it's funny, like, um, so I think that uh, I'll start by saying I think a lot of what has happened is that what has been good for investors and in finance namely Wall Street in this context, is, has been translated into what is good for, is actually a good business practice. And so that's where you get a lot of the short-term, you know, focus and quarterly sort of capitalism. Um, but I think that's a recipe for uh, failure. Um, and I think that's a, a recipe that has, that is damaging the economy. And, and from my perspective, accelerating a lot of the inequalities that we're seeing. Um, and so uh, a lot of my, you know, I'm finding my role is, is sort of framing and in a way, um, you know, you, you have development of like, I don't know, elderhood, so to speak, in, in terms of like this, this tribe, but like um, when we started out, like uh, Hewlett Packard got together and they were like, let's start a company. And they're like, sweet, what should we do? And they're like, didn't even think about that. 
Um, and they're, you know, still around and, uh, uh, because it was about like a broader purpose. Um, and so when we started, like, I didn't have any money. I just traded, I had $9,000 in my IRA and I traded that out. And then my wife had a, we had two cars. And so I traded my wife's car and got a pickup truck and we were picking up electronics. Um, I was out like, and then I recognized that composting was an important thing that, that we should be doing. And so, you know, we built that up into the largest, uh, collection in the city of Denver and we sold it. But as we were building it, you know, there was a, a customer base that was going through a lot of soil and, and we sort of recognized that there's an opportunity. We, we sort of listened to that customer co-created products that helped meet their needs and, you know, tapped into the next leg of growth. And so, you know, from a, a, a company looking to build enduring growth, we want to continually continue to responsibly grow. We have to be sort of um, seeding uh, and, and reaping the benefits of various growth at, at the same time. Um, and so it just requires a, a very different mindset than kind of the reductionist. Here's what we do. We take this one product, we impose it and we scale it on the world because that's what we're taught to do. And that's, what's good for finance. And, and, you know, I think that's just not the way that we roll. And so, so you're telling me you traded in your IRA, sold car. Um, how else did you get funding for this? And, and are you still getting funding? So we worked with um, Axion, uh, which is a, a, a micro lender. And they gave us our first, I think, three loans that we've all paid back. Um, what's interesting with where we are and where we operate is that banks are famous you know, and they say that they only lend money to people who don't need it. So micro lenders are fantastic sort of uh, gap. Um, and then uh, investors are really focused on uh, kind of this um, on the angel side are, are kind of taking their cues from the venture capital nonsense of like, show me a huge scalable pro product that can, that can scale. And, and what's unfortunate mm -hmm. is that it's starting to translate into impact as well, which is sort of ridiculous because inherently not everything scales. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there are, um, you know, a handful of, uh, uh, of, of good solid angels out there that have been really awesome for us. And that's where we've gotten financing. Um, the institutional side I think is, is, um, is still a challenge just because of the nature of their, um, arrangements with investors. I, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, Micro lending on the debt side has been fantastic. Um, and then angel investment, we've been fortunate to have. I think um, moving forward, crowdfunding through things like WeFunder is something mm. that we're really excited mm. about continuing to evolve. But, um, you know, uh, we haven't done that yet. And so, John, I'm, I'm really interested because a lot of guests we have on the show have this. Um, this this narrow mindset of kind of what a business should look like and, and kind of what I'm hearing from you is a different perspective on that, which is fascinating for me. Um, it, 
in, in your idealistic world, in your opinion, like what, what should every business aim to be? What, what should every business um, look forward to? I think authentic, you know, like authenticity sort of um, uh, is something that sort of comes to mind. But we sort of say that we're combining the business acumen of Jack Stack and Warren Buffett with the wisdom of Buddha and Lao Tzu and the organizing principles of nature to build um, the most responsible uh, conglomerate. Um, and I can break that down. Uh, Jack Stack is uh, one of my heroes and started an employee-owned holding company out of Springfield, Missouri called uh, SRC Holdings. He, along with 13 others, um, it's employee-owned. Uh, they spun off, you know, I, I, I don't quote me on it, but I think close to 200 different sort of businesses throughout their history. Um, and it's something that I think is a good model that already exists that you can sort of borrow from and, and then apply some of um, what I think has, has changed, um, you know, since that period of time. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, what businesses should, should provide is um, this place to allow growth from a multi-stakeholder perspective. Um, you know, we think about things kind of, and, and Carol's did a really good job, sort of Sanford did a really good job of explaining the multi-stakeholder perspective, which, you know, which starts with customers and uh, moves to co-creators, people on the team, suppliers, moves to the earth, uh, moves to community, moves to investors. So managing and adding value to each of those simultaneously, I think the byproduct is you build um, you know, a very profitable company, but you also then through that help to solve uh, a lot of the, or, or help heal some of the social environmental, uh, um, you know, systems on which a, a business depends. But I think that really starting with um, a level of understanding of those stakeholders is the place where businesses should operate from. And I think uh, reducing the companies to what they do um, is really a byproduct of serving um, the investor stakeholder mm. and finance stakeholder more than anything else. And I think we need to broaden the horizon. And um, I think it's the right way to approach business. But I also think that these are the companies that are going to be uh, those that I think transcend what, what comes next and, and helps sort of build, um, you know, uh, my, my, my wife's grandmother is from Cincinnati and she calls Procter and Gamble Procter and God. Um, and she has like a little glint in her eye. And I think it makes sense because, you know, Procter and Gamble helped to define a, a generation coming home from a war, uh, rebuilding a country and, and it sort of spoke to her generation. It makes sense, but like our generation doesn't have that. And, and I think we need a new set of companies to help build what comes next. And I think um, to the extent that, that um, you know, uh, we've been left out of, you know, where we are, I think we need the opportunity to create these spaces for us to continue to drive um, collectively where we're going and, and in that like entrepreneurial 
what I think has become and evolved into a sort of myth is that there's these, you know, um, mythical people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or whomever that that we all um, are in awe of. But I think that that capability rests in all of us if 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 we have sort of the foundation, the potential. And I think that it's it, the myth is it's not one person. It's sort of like you know, creating this space where we can, we can bring what is uniquely us and maintain that, but do it in service to something bigger than ourselves. Um, right. So, right now, John, you mentioned, uh, your grandma lived in Cincinnati. I got one, I got one out there too. And, uh, you know, Procter and Gamble being such a big influence on the community on, uh, like you said, coming out, uh, rebuilding a, a nation after world war, um, uh, two. And, uh, I had a big conversation uh, with a friend about this is I was trying to explain to him what a social entrepreneur was. Um, I was saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's somebody that adds additional societal or environmental value to the value chain, um, you know, whether that's bringing a product from a, a, a third world country to a first world market um, or, you know, benefiting their employees, their own healthcare packages, um, just adding an additional value. Uh, so when you're speaking to me about a company like Procter & Gamble, that was his argument. Well, these companies have been around for a long time. They're sustainable because of their mission. What you see now with, uh, with something like Gillette, with that commercial, is they're, they're seeing this business activity, this trend, um, you know, maybe partly due to the, the Me Too movement, and uh, they're capitalizing off of that. Um, they're saying, hey, it's, you got to be more than a man. You got to set the tone and, and, and hopefully, you know, uh, have more consumers buy your products because that's what your company is about. It's, it's great um, ethical marketing. Um, how, where do you draw the line on, on a business that is a social enterprise versus an enterprise? And, and um, it, it's such an undefined concept for me. So I'm trying to figure out from how you think, what would you say um, is that main difference? I think it's an interesting question. I think it's, um, again, authenticity. And I think um, Rumi is a poet. Um, and he was sort of, and still remains at this point, uh, sort of a driving force of our, our annual plan. But he had a, um, he has a part of his, one of his poems that, that was, I was uh, clever and tried to change the world. Then I got wise and decided to change myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, uh, if the core company itself and its purpose and this mission is not sort of aligned, and um, then I think anything that's an extension there, there, thereafter is on shaky ground. And I think. Um, in um, a slower changing world, you, you had sort of um, both of information, likely information, both consumer information and, and other like um, companies could, uh, I think, hide in, in some senses. But I think that, you know, now, um, you know, there is greater transparency. And I think that, you know, uh, there's greater transparency. And I think that companies that, that, um, are built on that solid foundation 
are going to struggle. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, we, um, I think that that distinction will become sort of a non-issue. And I think that those that will succeed into the future will be those that are, you know, how you're defining social in nature. And uh, it will be what is necessary to sort of um, operate in, 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 in the world we're going to. And, and so I don't think that the distinction will be um, as stark as it is now. I just think it'll be the way that we operate. And, and you know, um, we're evolving and technology is changing and, and, and certainly those are things that are going to, to, to reshape the future or to shape the future. Right. But I think also just, uh, what it means to be a human being is, is something that's being called into continual sort of light and, and, um, all companies are sort of this, you know, uh, um, coming together of a lot of, um, various individuals to, to, to form an organism and to, um, make, right, right. make a dent. Now, John, we talked a lot about transformation and, and, um, uh, technology being a big part of that. Where do you see, uh, waste farmers in technology playing a role in that in, in uh, 2050? So I think that, um, what we're really intrigued about is obviously uh, one of the things that I keep going over, and this is this would be very simple, but like oversimplified, but like economic. So, so, so civilizations have collapsed for you know um, massive social equality and an overrun of resources, both of which we're facing pretty heavily, right? I mean, we can agree to that. Um, then where we are now is economic growth actually decreases social equality. I'm happy to elaborate, but we can just stop there. So increased economic growth decreases inequality. Okay. Good. Um, so slower economic growth increases inequality. Um, so then increased economic growth status quo increases climate change. Um, where we are with climate change is that we need technology. Like we have to, to reduce the emissions that we have, but we also have to take out what we've put in, right? Um, in order to get those technologies, we need the economy to keep growing. And so mm, what I'm trying to get at is climate change is going to be a really critical driver of economic growth. Uh, technologies around that. Um, and I think that as environmentalists, we have to also have to acknowledge that there are, you know, we are in the midst of needing to adapt, you know, both to regenerate and to adapt to how the climate's changing. And so in 2050, we want sort of this uh, nested, um, interconnected, very agile um, network of businesses focused on, um, you know, uh, regeneration uh and the opportunities that will come out of that whether that's soil sequestration or um you know carbon capture and and utilization uh and then also things around adaptation um because 
you know, already we're, we're, <laughs> we're feeling some of the effects and it's, it's funny. We're kind of like lobster, uh, and, and slowly boiling water, but like, you know, I think that there are things that are going to arise out of the need to adapt to changes that will occur regardless of, of what we do. Uh, and so those are the areas that we really focus on. And I think, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, just think about uh, how large the, the industry was extracting carbon out of the ground and what that did to change humanity. And I mm. think that a lot of that carbon being in the atmosphere creates a whole new opportunity to sort of <laughs> create a whole uh, uh, shift of, of huge, huge, huge market potential. Right. Um, and so we want to be able to contribute to that. But also, um, we want to create a foundation of a company that allows for us as a group of individuals servicing and a part of a stakeholder chain to say what matters to you, what how can we help you? How can we respond to the needs that you have? What do we want to co-create together? So this idea of co-creation is, is a really big deal for us. Interesting. And John, uh, for someone like myself who isn't involved with farming on a day-to-day basis, how is climate change impacting traditional farming? And what is your solution kind of for that? Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a really complex question. At least um, your opinion. So I think that number one, I think um, that's really complex. I mean, like, you know, population follows, like every advance we've had in technology as far as food's concerned has been met with an increased population that needs to be fed. Now we have a population that needs to be fed. Uh, and the way that we grow food at present, you know, um, simply can't, keep up with that and so it's going to have to evolve one way or other um and uh i think that controlled environment agriculture will probably play a pretty big part in that um i think if silicon valley has their way you know potentially food might not be something that needs to go to energize this consciousness um but as it relates to environmental services uh, i think that if we were to uh Add 2% organic matter to soil, we could, we could capture all man-made carbon. Mm, really? And in order to do that, um, we have to find a way to, you know, to, to, to monetize that or to create some sort of incentive around you know, carbon. And if that were to happen, it's an enormous, enormous, enormous market. Um, so wait, so hold, I'm going to pause you really quick, John. You said add 2%. Yeah, organic organic soil will capture all of the man-made carbon. Really? How does that soil, work? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, just think back to science class, like to, to like right. um, when you study like the carbon cycle. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're we're naturally sort of uh, the soil is is naturally cycling that that carbon, but and this is all estimates. The challenge is how you quantify that on an individual basis, and there's people working on it, but. Mm. The, the economics are really difficult without uh, a market for carbon at a pretty substantial rate. Um, but what that does is it creates incentives for farmers to get paid for some of the ecosystem services that they're not at present. Um, and, you know, there is like 
the beyond organic sort of regenerative standard that's being developed to try to create some sort of market mechanisms to sort of help drive some of this. But, um, you know, I think that's the, the funny thing about where we are is that, um, there's an old saying, like, if you think hoofpatter, don't think zebra, like, uh, in this part of the country, like it's probably not the most, like it's probably a horse or something that would be a pretty obvious answer. And we've got a lot of obvious, easy answers, but, um, they're just buried in a lot of the complexity and things that, that, uh, um, you know, uh, we're afraid to let go of. And, and again, getting back to sort of the, this, this, I call it a, a quagmire that we're in of like, we need economic growth because we, we don't want to have increased social equality. Like, um, we need economic growth because we need to be driving towards technologies, but the way that we're growing the economy at present is making our lives more difficult down the road because it's increasing the impacts of climate change. So, um, you know, it's, uh, Definitely. it's, a it's, a, it's a head scratcher. And now, uh, John, are you doing this to be a part of that movement to be say, hey, obviously you have your core values. You want to make the world a better place and everything that. But, you know, is this for maybe your grandkids? Is this for when you're on your deathbed and you say, hey, I actually, you know, cared about my job. I cared about my my impact on this earth. You know, what's that core thing that's really driving you to do this? Um, or is there one? No, I, it's always been, I, I, um, I think, um, as I look around sort of the landscape of, you know, where, yeah, again, like I said to the beginning, like, there is such a, part of mentalization of like you know what do you do like this is my work life this is my home life this is and um i think that if that need to compartmentalize and do all those different things comes from just something that doesn't naturally resonate with who, who we are mm. uh and i think getting back to that creative aspect like for me um, i haven't thought about that i guess because um i feel like i am operating in tune with uh, my natural state and um the goal then is to sort of uh and in that is a process of growth and development that i think is engendered through the entrepreneurial experience like mm-hmm. there's just no way to hide from yourself or pacify yourself or, uh, and so you just get exposed to all these parts of yourself that I think, um, you know, uh, as a culture that's become really uh, adverse to uncomfort, that, you know, um, in those uncomfortable places, you get to like uh, grow. And so um, for me, I don't think uh, that far ahead, it's more of it just like, how can how can we create this experience um, and provide this platform for others and continue to sort of uh, multiply that? Because I think that's how you sort of, again, ripple out. I, I think, you know, Carol talks about it a little bit, but like democracy is not functioning because, you know, um, at the core of it, we have businesses that, that uh, expect people not to think uh, historically and, and want people to be cogs and, um, 
and look to them for answers and be dependent upon them. And I think that if we're going to change that, let's, let's uh, build companies that uh, are looking for critical thinkers and people who have a mastery of, of self as far as those things can go and have, you know, some level of um, business acumen. I think we can, you know, change, uh, you know, at this level, I think it's, like I said, I think it's a huge level. John, this has been a, uh, not just an eye-opening, a mind-opening experience on this uh, fine Monday, January 21st. Uh, lastly, you know, it's, I've learned so much on this podcast, whether it's from your business to your mindset to the principles that Waste Farmers stands for. Um, but for people listening to this that, you know, might be like yourself, uh, you know, nine years ago, what advice would you give to them? I think the advice I would give would be to um, um, you know it's funny I think uh, everyone's experience is unique um and I think uh, find what what resonates. Um, uh, put uh, little um, uh, weight into into what people think. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that the largest advice would be to. Um, it took me a long time to trust intuition. Um, and I, I feel like um, it was a disservice. So I would say that, that there's a part of you that already knows who you are and, and listen to that and follow it and fuck everything else. Love it. So I, I think the main takeaway from that, and, and I think you hit the nail around the head for this entire conversation, trust your intuition. Um, trust your intuition. I like that a lot. Um, so for everyone listening to this, I hope you learned a ton as much as I did. I hope you had as much as fun as I did on this Monday. Um, and, uh, we just want to thank John for coming on and explain to us, um, about the, about the future of waste farmers and, and best of luck going forward. We're hope you hope to see you all on the list in 2020. Um, and with that folks, again, you can see John's story, John's mission, all uh, on Aurelia's uh, magazine. It's the 100 top impact companies of 2019. You can find those in your local retailers, newsstands around North America. Um, and again, get on that same page and turn that page to purpose. So, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and to all the fans out there, got to do what John says. Trust your intuition and always keep it real.